it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Wednesday, July 27, 2022. My name is Guy Benson. I'm the host of this show, which appropriately is called The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here every weekday, Monday through Friday, from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. It's also available around the clock as a podcast for free, totally no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, one place to get that podcast and other content related to the show. You can also check out FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media. There's a lot there as well. Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. I'm the political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor, and I will be joining the whole crew, the party, on Gutfeld, exclamation point, tonight, 11 p.m. in the East on Fox News Channel, and I'm looking forward to that, and I will hope to see you there. You can tune in. You can set your DVRs should you feel moved to do so. Here's the radio lineup today. Steve Moore, the economist, will be here coming up later this hour. The Fed chair making some announcements. The Fed raising interest rates, 75 basis points. Powell saying we're not yet in a recession. Let's just keep everything in perspective for now. Take everything with a grain of salt. Okay, we'll get Stephen Moore's reaction to that, his analysis coming up. In our next hour, former Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey. We'll weigh in on 2022, 2024 politics and beyond. Josh Krasauer also, who gets, who gets into some hardcore political analysis. Uh, we will track the latest news with him in our final hour just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. I was on America's Newsroom this morning on the news channel in the 9 a.m. hour Eastern, and it was Bill and Dana and myself sitting at the table, and we had a few different topics to cover, one of which we will get to later on in the show because I have a lot more to say about it. That's in our middle hour. But one of them was the latest example of an administration official trying to downplay a crisis and describe it as something other than a crisis. In this case, it was the Attorney General of the United States, who was asked about the crime crisis, these soaring violent crime rates and and other forms of crime across the country in many different places. And he would not call it a crisis, Merrick Garland. He called it a matter of concern. And it got me thinking and brought me back to a point that I raised here on the show yesterday, just kind of in a quick throwaway question it occurred to me when we were talking with Jason Chaffetz and then I reiterated it on the air with Bill and Dana earlier and I thought it might be worth fleshing out even further here for all of you and this is the point the point is how many times does it take and maybe we're past the Rubicon maybe we're well past the point of no return on this but how many times does it take 
for this administration, the Biden team, their defenders in Congress, in the news media, to take a really serious, glaring crisis and a problem affecting Americans that's really hard to deny based on the reality all around us and just kind of dismiss it or spin it away or play little word games with the public, how often does that need to happen until people don't just tune it out but actually start getting actively angry, insulted by it? Because most American voters may not follow the news as closely as we do here, right? We're kind of weirdos if we're, you know, following every news cycle and talking about politics and headlines every day for three hours. Most Americans aren't in that category. But they also can tell when their collective intelligence or their personal intelligence is being insulted. And I feel like on issue after issue, controversy after controversy, that is what we've gotten, a steady diet of that from Team Biden. And Garland talking about the area or matter of concern on crime is just the latest. You think of the border crisis where DHS Secretary Mayorkas comes out over and over again and says, oh, yeah, the border's closed, border's secure. It's not a crisis. It's a challenge. Remember last year they accidentally called it a crisis just briefly, and they had to quickly reel that back in. Oh, no, no. We, did we use that word? We meant a different word that started with C, challenge. It's a challenge, not a crisis. It's just a challenge in terms of managing our closed, secure border. Meanwhile, we're... What, blowing past 900,000 gotaways alone last fiscal year and this one? More than half a million since October? Half a million gotaways, known gotaways. Oh, yeah, closed border. Secure border, just a challenge. Don't believe the numbers. If you live down there, don't believe your eyes. Just listen to us. We've got this. Then on inflation. You had people warning about it, serious people warning about it for good, accurate reasons. And the White House for months said, oh, it's transitory. Don't worry, it's just transitory. Biden, about a year ago, said it's going to be temporary. And then when it wasn't so transitory and wasn't so temporary, then it morphed into everyone else's fault. Right? It's the... COVID pandemic, it's supply chain issues, it's Putin. On gas prices, it's Putin's price hike. Of course, it has nothing to do with their hostile policies on domestic energy exploration and production. It's Putin. It's the greedy oil companies. It's those nasty gas station owners who are charging too much. And then when gas prices come down a little bit, well, it's Biden. Right. It's the Putin price hike and then the Biden price reduction. That's the game that they're trying to play. It's just game after game. Gaslighting, spin. We told you about the graphic they put out yesterday with the typo in it where they're trying to claim credit on gas prices. It's just amazing. After they told us they had no control. We don't have we don't have control. President doesn't have control on this stuff. Until I guess magically he does when the trend is slightly in a good direction, but still ridiculously high and painful. And now, of course, we have recession. 
and the whole fight over that. We won't see the numbers until tomorrow, the GDP number. That's going to be released, we expect, tomorrow morning, July the 28th. And if that number coming in shows negative growth again in the second quarter, that would be the definition of recession that everyone has used for decades. But the White House, that's clearly just their talking point. They are announcing to the media Our position is that is no longer the definition of what a recession is. We are not going to treat it that way anymore, even though a bunch of these people have in the past, but no more because that could be inconvenient to them. We don't know what the number is going to be tomorrow. Maybe it'll be, you know, zero. Maybe it'll be, you know, slight growth. We don't know. But if it's less than zero, they are setting the table to pretend that is not what they themselves and everyone has called a recession. That rule of thumb, loose definition forever. Brian Deese, one of the top economic advisors at the White House, he keeps saying it to anyone who will listen. Here's another example, cut to. The definition of recession, which has been an issue that I know many of you have uh, reported on, um, as Secretary Yellen said on Sunday, uh, two negative quarters of GDP growth is not uh, the technical definition of recession. It's not the definition that economists have traditionally uh, relied on. Well, it actually, on the latter part, it is. It is the definition that we have all relied on forever, basically. But we've suddenly gotten very technical. And leading up to Thursday, it is remarkable. I should not be surprised by the news media ever. The depths they are willing to plumb in hackery. But sometimes I am surprised anyway. Against my better judgment and my own instincts and my own lived experience. The White House comes out and says, oh, even if we get a second consecutive quarter of negative growth, that's not a recession. That's not what economists call it. It's not technically right. It's much more complicated than that. And lo and behold, sure enough, like clockwork, you've got a bunch of journalists scrambling to adjust to their tribe's latest messaging as declared by the White House preemptively ahead of tomorrow. So you've got the Really, I guess, predictable hacks. Paul Krugman, for example, he's out there saying this. He just wrote a column about how wrong he was on inflation. Well, he is very used to being wrong. He's wrong about almost everything all the time. He is a total Democratic partisan hack. So he has fallen right in line and he was rewarded with a Ron Klain retweet. Of course, the hyper online chief of staff at the White House. We just need that retweet to be quote tweeted by Jennifer Rubin, and it's just hack inception at that point. It's like one of those mirrors after with a mirror on each side and just goes forever. Hackery all the way down as far as the eye can see. I saw a reporter at Politico was doing this, and people have receipts of these exact people using the traditional definition of recession Many times in the past, like, oh, you wrote this not long ago. You wrote this a few years ago. This is the standard that you have used many times, but all of a sudden, not anymore. What a mystery. What a weird coincidence. The Democratic White House is anticipating bad news, so they're trying to change the playing field by altering definitions of words, and the media's like, let's backfill this sucker ASAP. Wasn't there a thing during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings where there's like a mini little controversy about sexual orientation versus sexual preference. And she said like the non-politically correct thing. And she was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that was it. I didn't mean anything by it. And 
literally overnight, one of the online dictionaries, it might have been Merriam-Webster, one of the online dictionaries changed the definition of one of those terms to fit the controversy. Like the left had a talking point against Amy Coney Barrett during her Supreme Court hearings. She said something, and the dictionary definition was not helpful to the attack line, so they changed the dictionary definition overnight. That is a thing that happened unless I hallucinated that. And now we're doing the same thing on recession. Here's the Associated Press. It's not Paul Krogman. It's not some lefty out there. This is the Associated Press. By one common definition, the economy shrinking for consecutive quarters, the U.S. economy is on the cusp of a recession. Yet that definition isn't the one that counts. Thank you, Associated Press. Good to know. And in the replies on Twitter, you have a thousand people basically just screenshotting time after time after time after time that the Associated Press used exactly that definition of a recession. The one that I guess all of a sudden doesn't count anymore. So, again, I think that at some point this messaging, whether it's on crime, matter of concern, not a crisis, the border, a challenge, closed border, not a crisis, inflation, temporary, transitory, not sticking with us for a while, recession, new definition, don't bother with that definition you've heard for decades, gas prices, down the list, their spin, their redefining of terms, their attempt to tell people that what they're seeing and feeling isn't really that thing. It's just textbook gaslighting. Repeatedly, that is not just ineffective. It is counterproductive. You piss people off is the term that I've now used a few times. It's not once. It's not twice. It's like, Over and over again, you are demanding that we warp our entire sense of reality and language to fit your political needs of the moment. And people who are out there struggling and hurting have had enough of it. It's not just ineffective. It is, I think, harmful to what they're trying to do. So I guess in that sense, I encourage them to keep it up. They are incapable of just leveling with the American people. They are incapable of acknowledging their own fault in a lot of these problems that they have caused or exacerbated. They are unwilling to just be honest and recognize what people are experiencing in a way that actually resonates with them. It's not some weird, hyper-politicized effort To pretend like, oh, no, look over here. You're the crazy one. Actually, actually, this is the reality, not this other thing. That wears on people. It gets galling and it builds. And eventually the weight becomes too much and people are like, you know what? Screw this. And I suspect there are a lot of Americans who have already reached or are at or are very close to the screw this breaking point. That's just my sense of it. And rather than pivoting to some semblance of reality and accountability, they're just allergic to that within this administration. So they're going to keep doubling down on this stuff. And as I said, go for it. Good luck. I've got one more example of this. (laughs) They are dredging up a talking point that I'd forgotten about, but it's back. It's back. 
and it falls right in line with this entire phenomenon. I'll tell you about that right when we come back. Quick break. It's The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Precise, personal, powerful. Is America's weather team in the palm of your hands? Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson, and I was right, by the way. We checked during the break. My memory was pretty good on this one. October 2020. Amy Coney Barrett, in her confirmation hearings, used the term sexual preference and overnight Merriam-Webster's Dictionary altered the definition of that term to include the word offensive. Because the left said, this is offensive that she said that. And she said, oh, I didn't mean it that way. You know, that was not an intentional slight at all. But they were just desperate to come after her for anything because she was so impressive almost flawless in those hearings. And so Merriam-Webster's Dictionary decided to do them a solid and say, oh, yeah, uh, it's actually offensive by definition to use that term. They did that specifically because of the controversy. It's amazing. Somewhere Orwell is starting a slow clap for this kind of thing. Meanwhile, speaking of the gaslighting and the spin... That is just like spitting right in your face like, oh, hi, America. We think you're stupid. Let's keep proving it to you. How stupid are you? Apparently not stupid enough if you look at Biden's approval ratings. The right track, wrong track numbers. People are actually a lot smarter than the White House evidently believes. But they are trying to resuscitate. Remember this one from Jen Psaki? The uh, actually the real defund the police parties, the Republicans, that whole thing. Actually, the anti-cop parties, the Republicans from last year, because the Republicans opposed the American Rescue Plan, which had some police funding buried in it somewhere. Well, I guess the Democrats are trying to flex on the cops and pretend that they weren't super hostile for a year and a half the way that they were, although they're having trouble in the House. Pelosi can't get her people together today. They're trying, though. So the White House put out an infographic and Biden's like, aha, look, look here. Look who was anti-police, the, the Republicans. They voted against the American Rescue Plan. You mean the American Rescue Plan that multiple Democratic economists have said was a mistake of historic magnitude on inflation? One of the worst bills on fiscal policy passed in the last 40 years? That was Larry Summers. That was Steve Ratner. The Republicans all voted against it, rightly. And now Biden's trying to say, oh, yeah, it means they're anti-cop. <laughs> All right. All right, bro. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Joining us here on the show is Steve Moore, Distinguished Fellow in Economics at the Heritage Foundation. Steve, good to have you here. Hi, Guy. Good to be with you again. I wanted to talk to you about all the economic news of the day, obviously, starting with this soundbite just moments ago 
the Fed Chairman Jay Powell looking at the broad picture. They're raising interest rates. Here's how he described the status quo in his opinion from where he sits. Cut 22. Very strong labor market, and it's just not consistent with you know, 2.7 million people hired in the first half of the year. Uh, it doesn't make sense that the economy would be in recession with, with this kind of thing happening. So uh, I don't think the, the U.S. economy is in recession right now. Ah, haven't seen it, and, and we'll just have to see what it says. I, I don't uh, – I mean, I would say generally the, um, the GDP numbers do have a tendency to be revised pretty significantly. Uh, it's just it's just uh, it's very hard. It's very hard to accumulate U.S. GDP. It's a large economy and a lot of a lot of work and judgment goes into that. But you tend to take first GDP reports, I think, with uh, with a grain of salt. But of course, it's something we'll be looking at. All right. So he believes that the job growth is robust. So we're not in recession and the GDP number. He doesn't know what it is yet, but take it with a grain of salt. I mean, some fair points there. Right, Steve. But it also feels a little bit Pollyannish as well. Yeah. So first of all, the Fed has been wrong for nine months. Let's start with that, right? They, everything that they've said for the last nine months has been completely wrong. And so they don't have a lot of credibility, right? I mean, they were the ones who said it was transitory. They were said, the ones who said we, we wouldn't see runaway inflation. They are the ones who said we were at peak inflation and it keeps getting worse and worse. And so, you know, when you take the inflation rate from one and a half percent under Trump and in 17 months, you take it to nine percent, that's a pretty poor performance. And it's not just the Biden administration uh, fiscal policies, which had a big impact. But it's also the Fed that accommodated all of that massive multi-trillions of dollars of spending by printing money that created this crisis. So I would say this guy, this, that it is true that on the employment front, it's a strong economy. No question. This might be America's first full employment recession. What the problem is and where people are really getting killed is it's not that they don't have jobs. It's that they uh, don't have uh, the income. They're losing income month after month. So the average family, according to the study by my colleagues at the Heritage Foundation, have the average family has lost $4,000 in purchasing power. And that's a big, big, you know, cut in the income and the living standards for average Americans. So let's just say we do enter a recession. It might be now, right? We might be living through it right now. We might get a bad number tomorrow. We'll see. It might be 2023 or even 2024. That's the other thing. People are talking like, oh, it's either now or never. It could be now and for a while. It could be a double dip now and then again later. We don't really know where this is going. Some of the signs are concerning. If you do get into a recession and the Fed ends up taking you know, harsh action to finally curb inflation, seems like the market likes what they're seeing and hearing so far today with the uh, interest rate that they've that they bumped up again. But if they have to clamp down further and if consumer sentiment continues to fall and people start adjusting their consumption habits, at some point that would cross over into the jobs picture as well. Right. Like this, this could end up reverberating in ways that currently look relatively strong. I, I'm not rooting for this, obviously, because it would hurt far too many people. But those could potentially be lagging indicators if the economy continues to go south. Yeah, look, the problem is, you know, that inflation is like a cancer cell that you inject into the 
into your body. And, and when you have a cancer cell, you have to take care of the cancer, right? You have to do something about the cancer before it metastasizes and gets worse. And that's where the Fed and the Biden administration have been so delinquent. They should have dealt with this nine months ago. They made all these predictions that were completely wrong. And now it's, it's like, you know, we have to remove this tumor. And so it's going to require some some chemotherapy, and that's not a lot of fun. But that's the price we pay, guys, for all of this massive borrowing and spending. I mean, you know what surprises me the most about this whole story, Guy, is that anybody's surprised by it. I mean, what did they think would happen when we borrowed and spent $3 trillion and then printed the money to pay for it? Well, they insisted that the bad things would not come and that we were crazy. And that it was going to be just fine. And, of course, that was all incorrect. And now they have their latest talking points that they're trying to force feed the public, a very skeptical public. I saw a CNN poll that they flashed on the screen on their network earlier today. They asked people, how do you feel overall about the state of the U.S. economy? It was 18 percent good, 82 percent poor. I mean, that's where the American people are overall so, I mean, they can be, you know, debating what the what's the old phrase about angels on the head of a pin or whatever. It doesn't actually affect the way people are actually feeling based on their own experiences out there. And the concern is it could get even worse. And the better inflation starts to get, it might be because of that chemotherapy. And then other indicators start to go sideways. And it's just a lot of moving parts. And I understand some of the anxiety that's out there. I mean, it it's logical. It makes sense. Steve, on the issue of the interest rate hike, I saw they came out, they announced 75 basis points. I'm in no position of expertise to have an opinion on, you know, what that means and whether it's sufficient. I've already read some economists saying what they're doing is still woefully insufficient. I don't know. Do you have a vantage point on that? You said the Fed's been wrong a lot over the last year. Are they still getting it wrong in your view? Uh, they're way behind the curve. I do think the 75 basis point increase was probably appropriate. I might have gone to 100 basis points, but this was a start, and it shows they're finally starting to take the inflation that they thought was imaginary uh, seriously. Uh, but the other problem I have, Guy, it's something you talk a lot about, is, look, where is the growth going to come from? You know, we all want growth. We want a, a vibrant economy. We want prosperity. We want higher wages. And I listened to Biden. I listened to Chucky Schumer. I listened to Nancy Pelosi. They've got these dingbat economic policies that are only going to make things worse. Now, as you and my buddy Larry Kudlow would say, the cavalry is coming in November to at least stop the bad things. But when these dingbats are talking about more spending, more taxes, more regulation, more green energy, it's like they don't get it. Yeah. And if they had their way, I've made this point many times, if they had one or two more votes in the Senate, they would have spent five trillion more on top of everything else. It's just like one of those counterfactuals that makes your head spin, makes you shudder a little bit. They came very close to inflicting way more damage than they already have. So, Steve Moore, where do we go from here? You know, tomorrow we get this GDP number. Uh Jay Powell says treat it with a grain of salt. It it takes a while, it gets adjusted. I mean, fine, fair enough. I don't remember a lot of this parsing and dancing around previous consecutive quarters of negative growth, which was just called a recession. That's what we all called it. Now we're treated to this whole story and song and dance about, well, not necessarily a technical definition, whatever. I, uh, how do you come down on that? What are you ex- what are you expecting tomorrow on GDP? And where do you where do you weigh in on the definition of recession? 
Well, I, mean, I like to go to the dictionary, <laughs> right? I like to go to the dictionary, and the dictionary definition of recession is is two straight quarters of, of negative growth. Well, now, careful, Steve. They might bit... change the definition, and this is <laughs> they literally might change it. They've done that before. Yeah. We talked about that earlier, <laughs> but your point is well taken. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but you're right. I mean, look, they changed the definition. You know how to notice how they changed the definition of peaceful, and they've definitely changed the definition of of, uh, of a woman, and they've changed the definition of uh, a lot of things, of, actually. Uh, transitory, transitory. I use I thought transitory is not temporary, but I guess not. So anyway, I mean, they they are very good at that. Uh, look, I think that we're in a soft recession right now. Soft. This is not the end of the world. What we're facing right now in terms of the contraction of the economy. And the real question is, where do we go from here? Do we have a crash landing or do we have a, uh, you know, a soft landing? And look, in normal circumstances, I'd say we can get through this. But I really worry about the leadership in Washington. I mean, just yesterday, they passed a bill with Republican votes to spend another $200 billion. I mean, they, they just don't get it. They feel like they can just play Santa Claus and spend and spend and spend. And it's like they've got an unlimited credit card. We've increased our debt by $5 trillion over the last since COVID hit. $5 trillion. I mean, come on. We've got to stop the spending. And I don't know, you maybe have a better finger on this than I do, but I don't see a lot of support in either party for no. cutting the government spending. No, and look, you can make an argument that some of the trillions that were spent when we shut down the economy by force, by brute force during the during the um, the pandemic, that some of those trillions were necessary. I just wish we were in a much better position, fiscal position to weather that sort of thing, as opposed to deep, deep in debt already and now only deeper in debt and getting yet deeper in debt afterwards. Like sometimes there are rainy days and you need to have some funds and you can do some good with some government spending. But when you are this far in the red and it's red ink as far as the eye can see and getting deeper, it makes it all worse. And when you need to have that flexibility, you do more harm than you would have otherwise under more sensible policies. But you're right. uh, We don't have those more sensible policies. The Republicans are bad on debt and deficits and spending, and the Democrats are insane on it. And, And that's the I think the sad reality of where things stand at the moment. Steve Moore, Distinguished Fellow in Economics at the Heritage Foundation, our guest reacting to today's news. Another big day on this front tomorrow. Steve, appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, guy. Have a great day. Take care. You too. When we come back, I want to bring you a few updates, some breaking news in the last few minutes on foreign policy involving China, involving Russia, some of that coming your way right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. I've uh, just tested negative for COVID-19 after isolating for five days. Thankfully, I'll now be able to return to work in person. But I, I want to thank you all for your well wishes, your prayers uh, over this past week and the calls I've gotten. I also want to thank the medical team here at the White House uh, for the incredible care they gave me. Fortunately, God, thankfully, thank God willing, there were, my symptoms were mild. My recovery was quick, and I'm feeling great. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that was the president earlier today. Rose Garden, he has tested negative. He's feeling better. The symptoms are gone, and we're very pleased to hear it. And by the way, here's a 79-year-old 
who had all the shots and had other treatments, and it was kind of a non-event that he worked right through. That is good news. Just in general for the country's society. Like, this is what endemic COVID actually looks like. Meanwhile, on the global stage, a few stories to bring to your attention. Just in the last hour or so, there were some remarks at the State Department from Secretary Blinken. The United States is offering a deal to the Russians to try to secure the release of WNBA player Brittany Griner. She's been over there on these drug charges now for quite a while. Remember, she's the one that LeBron James mused might not want to come home because of how rotten things are here. And then he put out a statement, no, no, that's not what I meant. I love America. There have been people increasingly putting pressure on the administration to get Ms. Griner out of there and bring her home from a Russian prison. And now the administration has very formally made a move in that direction. Here's the story from AP. The Biden administration has offered a deal to Russia aimed at bringing home WNBA star Brittany Griner and another jailed American, Paul Whelan. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said on Wednesday, in a sharp reversal of previous policy, Blinken also said he expects to speak with his Kremlin counterpart for the first time since Russia invaded Ukraine. Statement marked the first time the U.S. government has publicly revealed any concrete action it has taken to secure the release of Griner, who was arrested on drug-related charges at a Moscow airport in February. She testified Wednesday at her trial. Blinken did not offer details of the proposed deal, which was offered weeks ago, though it's unclear whether it will be enough for Russia to release the Americans. But the public acknowledgement of the offer at a time when the U.S. has otherwise shunned Russia reflects the mounting pressure on the administration over Griner and Whelan and its determination to get them home. Now, listen to this. Blinken said Washington would like some response from Moscow. Russia has for years expressed interest in the release of Victor Bout, a Russian arms dealer once labeled the merchant of death who was sentenced to 25 years in prison in 2012 on charges that he schemed to illegally sell millions of dollars in weapons. Now, we don't know for sure, it sounds like, that this is the proposed trade where we get Whalen and this WNBA player and they would get the merchant of death. And this is where kind of prisoner swaps or hostage swaps become difficult because my guess, I don't know the details of her case, but my guess is at least some of this is trumped up. This is the Kremlin and Putin trying to stick something in the eye of the United States of America because of all the assistance that we're giving Ukraine and how public we've been on that condemning their outrageous invasion of Ukraine. Like, oh, here we have a prominent American. Let's use this to embarrass them. So what she's guilty of or not, I don't know. It's very different than what this arms dealer was convicted of doing. Illicit arms sales. A 25-year sentence. I mean, his nickname was the Merchant of Death. I want her home. I want any American imprisoned unjustly abroad to come home. I would desperately want to be home if I were in their shoes, if I were their loved ones, family, friends. I would want them home virtually at any cost.
I don't know the details. I don't know the specifics. I do think it is concerning if they get an arms dealer and we get people who have done nothing or far less than that in exchange. Now, sometimes you have to do deals with the devil, but this is an administration that talks a lot about gun violence, right? How concerned they are about the weapons of war, a term that they like to use to describe, for example, AR-15s being too readily available. Here's an international arms dealing mega criminal responsible for untold deaths. His whole scheme was putting extremely dangerous actual weapons of war into the hands of very dangerous people who then use them to kill folks. He was brought to justice. And now, at least reportedly, he might be in the mix here for some proposed swap that I guess was proposed weeks ago. And do you read between the lines that the Russians haven't responded? So now Team Biden's going public to sort of like apply a little bit more pressure saying, hey, we'd like an answer here. It also, you're at a disadvantage if you're a good country with good intentions, with actual good values, when you're up against a kleptocrat, autocrat, thug like Putin. Like, we're at a disadvantage because we're just better. Still, these are tough questions. And what do you give up for an exchange? And what message does it send if the person being given up is someone like this? We don't know. Meanwhile, the Chinese government, the CCP, saying if Speaker Pelosi goes to Taiwan on that planned trip, that will be crossing a red line. I wonder what they mean by that threat. I don't think Pelosi should be deterred by it, but I agree with what Morgan Ortega said on this show this week. This should not have been a big public debate. She should have just shown up there and avoided all of this. All right. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show is next. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour has arrived on the Guy Benson Show, our middle out of three hours between three and six Eastern every weekday. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. My name, GuyBensonShow.com. Everything you need about the program is right there, including the free podcast. It's on demand every day, continues to grow. Thanks to all of you. At Guy Benson Show is our social media handle, Twitter and Instagram. Check that out if you would like. And as we get going here in this hour, before we get to our guest, a Fox News alert. The Dow way up today, surging 436 points, ending at 32,197. Seems like the markets were at least somewhat reassured by the Fed's interest rate hike and the Fed chairman saying he doesn't think that we're in a recession right now, although he hedged a little bit. He punted some key decisions into September. So at least for today, a positive response down on Wall Street. With us now is Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, a Republican, author of the book Republican Rescue. And, Governor, it's great to talk to you. Great to be on, Guy. Thanks for having me. Let me first start by thanking you. You and your wife invited me and my brother to the Yankees-Mets Subway Series game at Citi Field last night. You're on the board for the Mets, and you have access to a suite for a lot of the games. 
and it was very kind of you to invite us. We had a great time despite the outcome of the game. It's a great setup. The food was amazing, a really cool group of people. So just wanted to put that out there. I posted on social media. I just want to thank you since I had you here. Well, you're very welcome. It was great to have you and your brother there. And while we disagreed on the outcome, we both enjoyed the game. I think that's right, and I think tonight you guys probably have the upper hand looking at that pitching matchup, but uh, we shall see game two of the very short series uh, in Queens this evening. Governor, I want to ask you about this because I spent some of the show at the beginning in our first hour talking about just the eagerness with which a lot of people in the press have been latching on to the latest White House talking point where they're saying, oh, well, even if tomorrow's GDP number is negative growth again for the second straight quarter, despite what you've heard, you know, forever as the definition of what a recession is, that's not really a recession. And look, I understand that there are some mitigating factors and that the labor market's good and the jobs numbers are overall pretty strong. I'm not denying any of that, but it seems like if a Republican were to try the same trick, to say, let's throw out the definition of what this bad term means because we might experience it on our watch and we want some political cover, Uh, even if there were some of these other factors and points of strength. I I just cannot imagine the media uh, rushing to a large extent to say like, oh, oh, yes, let's adjust our language accordingly. Thank you for that guidance, Republicans. It's just unfathomable. It would never happen. And yet in a number of places, including the Associated Press, that's been the last 48 hours of our de- of our discourse. Does the definition still mean the same thing that it has for a century or whatever? Uh, and I know you've been, as a Republican, on the other side of this many times. And I'd imagine you might have a few thoughts. I do. Uh, first guy, on the White House, desperate people do desperate things. And trying for the first time in a century to redefine what a recession is, is desperation. And it just tells you how... These bad poll numbers, these bad gas prices, bad food prices, supply line shortages, crime in the streets, uh, how that's affecting the brain function of the people in the Biden White House to believe that people are going to allow them to do that. The only exception to that rule is if you're a Democrat and you're being covered by the mainstream press. And then you get every break in the world cut for you. And you're right. I, I was you know, I operated for eight years in, I think, the toughest media market in America, in New York and Philadelphia, uh, where they give you no break as a Republican, uh, give you no quarter. And what we're seeing with Biden now just reinforces what all of us already know, which is that the media is not on our side, and they never will be. And this is another example of how foolish um, they are to just continue to wreck their own credibility um, by siding with something by the Biden folks, which is clearly deranged. Yeah. And so on that point, a couple of things. I tweeted this earlier because I was I was watching the spin happen in real time. Just, you know, the marching orders coming down from the White House on high and a bunch of people just ingesting them and regurgitating them immediately. And this is what I tweeted. And it's a sports analogy. So I think you might like it. I said with the mainstream news media, Democrats play home games. Republicans are the away team. Yes, the crowd occasionally boos the home team when they're frustrated or dissatisfied with the team's performance, but they're wearing the colors and will always be back. That's kind of how I view it. Maybe a little simplistic, but it feels kind of apropos. Guy, you'd always rather have a home game to continue the analogy. 
And, yeah, there are going to be times when the home crowd isn't always on your side, but they're your crowd. And the mainstream media is the hometown crowd um, for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And there's just no doubt about that. And this is another example of it. So yeah, and, and sometimes surprised. And sometimes they'll say, well, look, you know, we criticize the Democrats, too, and they'll show a few examples. But in many, if not most of the cases, the instances of that criticism, it's criticism coming from the left. Right. So they criticize Republicans from the left, of course. But in many cases, they criticize Democrats from the left. Why aren't you progressive enough? Why aren't you effective enough in achieving the things that we want? That's that's a sort of a qualitative difference in addition to the quantitative difference in the type of criticism that we see. Last question on the media bias thing, because it's a trope and it's an important one. But I want to move on to a couple other things. But and I'll, I'll occasionally float this. And I just wonder if it might one day gain some currency on the left within the journalism, uh, you know, world and within democratic politics. But I do wonder, is that sort of tribal instinct with so many in the journalist class just so in the tank on leftism and democratic party politics and all of it? Is it so blatant and so potent and so powerful that it actually ultimately ends up hurting them? in that they are so closely wedded and so deep inside the same bubble that they form an echo chamber that is, as it turns out, very off-putting to many Americans, including independent swing voters, and sort of the laziness and the bias of the press uh, begets a laziness among Democrats who believe they can get away with anything, and... Ultimately, they get fat and happy reading their own press, and it hurts them with voters. Well, look, there's no doubt in my mind that they take it for granted and that anything that puts you on your heels in politics, in my view, um, in any way for any amount of time is a problem. You always need to be on your toes, on the balls of your feet, and ready to go to react, to propose, to act. And I think that the Democrats do take some solace in knowing that they're going to have certain publications uh, in the mainstream media. They're going to be on their side all along. And it does make them um, a little bit complacent at times. But what it also does, too, is it fires up our side, guys. Yeah. Because we still see it and we see the bias and it makes us work even harder most of the time to be able to try to overcome it. Yeah, it's like just to do one more tortured sports analogy. It's like a hockey goalie doesn't take shots on net. For like half a period, then in comes one shot. He's like, "How dare you?" And that's how how they react sometimes. If they get any tough coverage, they they kind of freak out. Like, "Hang on, guys, you're supposed to be on our side." It's this sense of betrayal, and it's it's very obvious when they're sort of caught off guard by the the occasional stray truth bomb from the press. Governor Christie, you and I had a bit of this conversation last night at the ballpark, and I thought it was interesting enough that I want to share it with the audience here. We were talking about 2024 a little bit and all this buzz around Biden. Is he going to stay? Is he going to run for reelection? Is he going to be out? I don't think he's going to make himself a lame duck before the midterms. But I think at some point, maybe ne- le- you know, late next year, the time is going to come where he's going to announce he's not running for reelection. That's my guess. I could be wrong. Democrats are very unhappy with him. They're dissatisfied. The polling numbers bear this out. But then you look at who else is out there. And you're a pretty astute observer of political talent. You've got the vice president. So if not Biden, and you might think that's a flawed premise, but if not Biden, you've got the vice president, who I think is 
um, flawed in terms of her political, limited in terms of her political talent and appeal, uh, but would be awfully difficult to just supplant at the drop of a hat because of uh, the way that they operate on identity politics and all of that. You've got a few people like, you know, the secretary of transportation people want to talk about. Then you've got these governors, Newsom, California, Pritzker, Illinois, who don't seem to really have done a good job. If you look at actual, you know, results in those states, is it a is it a sign of desperation, a word you used earlier, among the Democratic electorate where they're like, okay, if it's not going to be Biden, gosh, maybe the governor of California is the ticket. I mean, in what world does he seem like an appealing guy? In his own world, guy. <laughs> Remember, this all starts inside his head and J.B. Pritzker's head. I mean, it's not like, you know, you have, you know, mountains of people coming to either one of them saying you must, you know, sacrifice for the nation and run for president. Um, they're doing things themselves to make it known they want to do it. Um, I think it does speak horribly to the vacuum that Biden and Harris have created, where even in their own party, they don't believe that either one of them um, could be the type of leader they need to be the standard bearer in 2024. Um, and I think that you're, what you're going to see um, is folks like Newsom and Pritzker, who for different reasons have the financial resources to be able to run a very early game for 2024. Pritzker's is personal. Newsom's is because of the enormous amount of fundraising capability there is out in California for him amongst that constituency. Um, they're going to play this early game. You see Newsom running ads in Florida and in Texas and, you know, to criticize those governors sitting there. Uh, and they are running. And I said this, you know, on, on, on ABC this week, you know, they're trying to explain what Newsom's doing. I'm like, it's no more complicated than he is running for president. That's it. And look, if you're running for president based on a record where you were recalled, um, you know, they had a recall election um, to uh, to go after you. I don't think that's a great record to run on. And certainly J.B. Pritzker driving Illinois closer to bankruptcy um, isn't one either. So Republicans may get lucky and run against one of those guys. Um, that would be a race I, that we race any of us would, would love to have. Yeah, I'm just not really sure, you know, how many Americans are clamoring to say, oh, yes, let's make uh, let's make this a big referendum on whether we want the country to be California. With, with, you know, many people leaving the state of California. In fact, we're going to talk about that coming up in the next segment. But I, I think you're right. These guys have decided or at least are very close to deciding they want to go after that prize. They've convinced themselves they could be the savior. It's like, you know, from the movie, it's like what we've traced. We've traced the grassroots movement of draft Newsom, and it's coming from inside the house, Newsom's personal house. That's that's ground zero for the draft Newsom movement. And I guess they are scared enough of 2024 and angry enough at Biden and skeptical enough of the vice president that they're like kind of looking around and maybe this kind of slick back, sleazy, failing governor of California, it's not so bad. But but I think you're right. Republicans would be thrilled to have that juxtaposition. Very quickly, 30 seconds, Governor, on the Republican side, if you had to guess, do you think Donald Trump will be an announced candidate for the presidency by, let's say, spring of next year? Yes. Hey, 
There we go. I didn't even need that? didn't even need thirty seconds. There was a one second answer. I tend to agree. That's not my preference. I've explained why, but I think you're right. And I think part of giving good political analysis is living in reality, not your yeah. own perceived reality. Governor Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey uh, and a friend at the ballpark last night. Thank you again, Governor. And thanks for joining us here. Guy, great to be here. Thanks for having me again. You bet. And go Yankees tonight. We'll see what happens. All right, we got to run. But more on this subject we were just talking about next, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. I saw this story earlier in the week from CNBC, and I thought it was interesting. Headline, bye-bye San Francisco. The top seven U.S. cities home buyers are seeking to leave. And they base the data on a report from Redfin, which is like one of those Zillow competitor sites, which tracks a huge amount of information all across the country, people who are putting places on the market, where people are on their way out of a city. And so they looked at all this information, they called the data, they poured over it, and they determined these are the top seven cities and areas in the country where people are looking to leave. Ready for them? Number seven, Detroit. Number six, Boston. Number five, Seattle. Number four, Washington, D.C. Number three, New York. Number two, Los Angeles. And number one, San Francisco. Detroit, Boston, Seattle, D.C., New York, L.A., and S.F. I can't quite put my finger on what all these places have in common where people are being driven out and seeking to go build a life somewhere else. Can you? It's such a mystery. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery, wrapped in an enigma. We might never really find the true pattern here. And in case my dripping sarcasm is not enough, here's a complimentary story that was highlighted by Mark Caputo at Politico. It looked at last year's influx and outflux of population in all 50 states. People arriving in a state, moving to a state versus leaving a state. And it's got roughly half of them gaining population, roughly half losing population. At the very top of the list... The state where the most people have moved in 2021, Florida, at over 220,000 new residents. That was in 21 alone last year. Texas, number two, at more than 170,000 new residents in those states, in that state. What is at the very bottom of the list? Illinois lost 122,000 plus people. Then New York lost over 350,000 residents in 2021, a lot of them, I would imagine, to Florida. And then the number one state of outflow, people leaving, California, which is where the top two cities that I mentioned in the CNBC analysis are featured, right? It all kind of checks out. California lost more than 360,000 residents last year. This is a state that has always gone up, up, up in population through the years. And then things have changed. They've gotten bad enough, unaffordable enough, dangerous enough, crazy enough that now hundreds of thousands of them last year alone, people living in California said, enough. 
were gone. Maybe Gavin Newsom, the governor presiding over the worst in the nation number here, just like it was worst in the nation on in-person schooling during the pandemic. Maybe he should spend more campaign cash, donor cash, running ads in Florida, attacking the governor who's presiding over the exact opposite phenomenon. This is number 50 out of 50, attacking number one out of 50. Good luck with that, Gavin. Great stewardship of your money, which really shouldn't surprise anyone, should it? Talking about California, after all. Good times. People vote with their feet. The numbers speak volumes. And the Guy Benson Show continues after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. From New York City, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 Eastern, also the podcast, free every day, GuyBensonShow.com. Catch me tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. Looking forward to that. I was also on TV this morning with Bill Hemmer, Dana Perino on America's Newsroom, and one of our topics was Democratic meddling in Republican primaries. And this is something that I've mentioned from time to time on the air. I've tweeted once or twice about it, but this week I got pushed over the edge. This bothers me a great deal. So I wrote about it at length yesterday at townhall.com. I mentioned it on TV this morning. I want to drill down into it a bit here in this segment. Now, let me start with this. It is not totally unheard of or even unusual for one political party or the other to try to play games with the other side during their primary process, to try to elevate certain opponents that they view as politically helpful in some way. And it's kind of an accepted tactic as part of the gamesmanship of politics. However, what the Democrats are doing this year, this cycle, I think is disgraceful. We have mentioned a few different times, for example, in Colorado, the millions of dollars that Democrats spent trying to boost election truthers, stop the steal, conspiracy theorists in Republican primaries with the obvious goal of getting those people or helping to get those types of people nominated by Republicans. The strategy behind it is that person, those people, would be easier in a general election to beat in the fall. So let's help them now and then turn around and assail them as radical extremists who are way out of touch with reality and the mainstream and then crush them in November. That's the play. That's the idea behind this. And you might be able to make a case based on polling and other factors that if this were simply a matter of winning and losing elections, it might not be the dumbest idea for Democrats to attempt. But the Democrats themselves have been telling us since January 6th and really all the way through the entire Trump era, some of it was completely overblown and sort of hyperventilation about how our institutions and norms were in grave danger from Trump and the Republicans and so on and so forth. And they were at an 11 out of 10 so often that when something actually really bad happened, a lot of people just write them off sort of tune them out already because this is the type 
of rhetoric that they were constantly engaged in, endless hyperbole. Now, they, of course, have attacked in their own way, in their own right, many times our norms and institutions. That is a theme on this show. When Democrats believe that there is a norm in our politics or an institution in our system that is standing in the way of their grip on power, their pursuit of power, their maintenance of power, which they view kind of as a birthright, then they have no problem attacking the legitimacy of those norms and institutions. And if they had the ability to do so, in many cases, especially on the harder left, they would burn all that stuff to the ground if it meant a little bit more power and a few more outcomes that they want. So they have no moral high ground on that, none. But they think that they do. And so they've talked endlessly about democracy being under fire and our very system of government being on a respirator and they need to save the country. And in order to do so, they have said how many times we need good, sensible Republicans to put country over party and be patriotic and do the right thing. Stand up to this Trump bully and to the mob. That's what they demand of Republicans. And the implication or the explicit statement is we need good Republicans, sane Republicans, just not these, what would they call them, maybe ultra-MAGA, dangerous people. And you might, just a little bit, take them more seriously if their party strategy in the midterm elections across the country did not look like it does, which is to find so-called sane, normal, non-super-MAGA Republicans and try to find a way to beat them in the primary with people that the Democrats themselves would describe as reckless threats to democracy. That's who they're supporting. That's who they're boosting. That's the way they're meddling in these contests. To throw the good, quote-unquote, or sensible Republicans out of office out of the race in a primary in favor of someone that at least in theory would be easier to beat and paint as a nut or a wacko or a crank in the general election. That's the calculation that they're making, and they are spending millions, four million in one Colorado race alone. And we talked about that a few shows ago. There have been other examples, and it's not just – this is a point I made on TV earlier – it's not just like Democratic outside groups, some super PAC you've never heard of with dark money. It's unclear who's doing the spending, where Democrats at least would have a veneer of plausible deniability. It's like, oh, well, that's not us. We can't condone that. We condemn that. We wouldn't go that way. But our hands are clean. You know, this is not – Our group, we don't have control. It's an outside group. That's not what's happening here. It is the official Democratic Party in race after race, state after state. The DCCC, which is the House election arm, the Senate Democrats are doing this. The Democratic Governors Association has been doing this, playing in Republican races to amplify, to assist, to lend help electoral help to people that they, by their own standards, think are crazy and dangerous. Because, 
at least based on this analysis, they are less electable and therefore the preferred opponent for Democrats in a general election. Let me repeat, it hasn't happened once or twice. It has happened repeatedly. There are more examples of it coming to the fore. This is an official strategy of the Democratic Party from their actual bona fide partisan campaign arms, the party itself, and PACs that are supported and endorsed and blessed by congressional leadership on the Democratic side. They're not doing a no-fingerprints approach to this. They are just straight up doing it. Hi, we're the Democrats. We're meddling in Republican primaries because we want these wackos to win because then we can beat them in November. And if that means defeating the types of Republicans that we claim we need more of, like, oh, this ain't your grandpappy's Republican Party anymore. These people are crazy. These people are super dangerous now. They're like, oh, give us some more of those crazy, dangerous people, actually. Get those other, get grandpappy's Republicans out. They feign this nostalgia. They fake admiration for people who are willing to quote unquote do the right thing. And then for their own pursuit of power, they come up and shiv those people right in the side. And the event that was really a bridge too far for me this week was the DCCC coming in and running basically straight up ads on behalf of Congressman Peter Myers primary opponent. Peter Meyer's been on this show. He's a young veteran. He's a conservative from Michigan, a congressman in his first term. And he came in right around January 6th, and one of his very first votes ever in Congress was a very tough vote on Trump and impeachment. And he voted his conscience. I think it was a completely defensible vote to vote yes on impeachment after January 6th. Bravo, congratulations for doing the right thing, right? This is all the things that they were saying while they were trying to very indignantly say, all these Republicans should do this. They should all put their country over party. This is the moment for that. We, the Democrats, insist, we demand that we all put partisanship and politics aside because this is just too important. This is about our democracy, right? This is how they were talking. This is how they have talked for a very long time now. Then the DCCC parachutes into the race, and they're running an ad that they're sort of camouflaging very clumsily as a quote-unquote attack ad against Peter Myers' Republican primary opponent, who's a MAGA guy, the election was stolen, all of that. And the ad is just a bunch of images of the challenger standing with Trump, smiling with Trump, agreeing with Trump. Oh, here he is. With Trump and Ben Carson working on these terrible agenda items like getting tough at the border and supporting patriotic education. In fact, just listen. Cut 21. Here's the attack ad, quote unquote, that the Democrats are spending a lot of money on to help boost the campaign of a primary challenger to Congressman Meyer in that Republican primary. Listen. John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. Handpicked by Trump to run for Congress, Gibbs called Trump the greatest president and worked in Trump's administration with Ben Carson. Gibbs has promised to push that same conservative agenda in Congress, a hard line against immigrants at the border, 
and so-called patriotic education in our schools. The Gibbs-Trump agenda is too conservative for West Michigan. DCCC is responsible for the content of this advertising. So if you're a Republican primary voter and this guy, Gibbs, doesn't have a ton of money, but he's trying to unseat Meyer and try to beat him in the primary for the nomination, and you don't really know that much, then all of a sudden the Democrats come in with ads sort of helping the guy who doesn't have the resources necessarily to get his own message out. They're like, oh, have you heard that this man is too conservative for West Michigan, handpicked by Trump? He loves Trump. He's going to pursue a conservative agenda on immigration and education. It's just too conservative, this guy and Trump. This is a fake attack ad that is a pro-Gibbs ad because the audience here is Republican primary voters for whom all of that stuff sounds good to great. It's not subtle what they're doing. No one is disputing that this is what the Democrats are up to. They're proud of it. This is their strategy. I'm not quite done on this yet. Let me finish my thought right after this short break on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. We're talking about this really cynical, sleazy campaign of Democratic meddling in Republican primaries. And I want to say another word about Peter Meyer, for whom I have a lot of respect. He wore the uniform. He defended this country. He's a principled guy. If you agree or disagree, he's thoughtful. He explains every vote, specifically why he casts a vote a certain way. He is conservative. And I'm sure some Trump fans would take issue with some of his votes and some of his statements on Trump. But at a moment of deep turbulence in this country, there was a vote on impeachment. Meyer took a tough vote that he knew would be unpopular with a lot of his own voters on his own side. The Democrats framed that vote as the right thing to do to put country over party, and they've rewarded him by trying to take him out to weaponize that vote against him among conservatives in favor of someone that they will argue in a general election if he wins is a dangerous conspiracy theorist nut who's against democracy and would hasten the demise of the country and blow up our form of government. That's the person they're helping. And the person they're hurting is the guy who went along with the thing they said was putting politics aside and putting country first. And this is the thanks that he gets. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's his own fault. He's naive. If he thought the left was acting in good faith, that's on him. They've done this in another race out in California. They weaponize an impeachment vote against a Republican incumbent out there as well. The vote that they insisted was necessary for the survival of America, if a Republican actually went along with them, then they used that against them as soon as it was politically expedient to do so. Quite obviously, you should not trust the good intentions of these people or the good faith. They are not operating with either. They are bare-knuckled partisans who will do and say anything to win. That is very clear, not from my assertion about them, from their own actions, backed by millions of dollars of spending. The Republicans who voted their conscience and made a decision on their own 
were standing up for what they believed in. That is a mark of character and integrity, even if you disagree. Making difficult, potentially unpopular decisions and going for it anyway does actually demonstrate some courage. So whether the Democrats were operating good faith or not, it's almost irrelevant to whether it was the right or wrong thing to do. That was a choice that these people had to make for themselves. It is just absolutely galling to see the party that up on their high horse was talking about defending democracy against these brutal attacks. That party is now going after the people who did, quote unquote, the right thing in favor of people that they will attack for being exactly the opposite, but they're helping them for political gain. And the only thing I can call that, honestly, that mentality, these actions, is party over country cynicism. It is one of the most cynical things I have ever seen covering politics in my career. It is mind-bending cynicism. It is absolutely disgraceful. Any shred of credibility that they had left on any of this, where people should take them seriously on these matters of deep importance that transcend politics, so they say, credibility shot. They should never be taken seriously again on any of that by anyone. And they've done it to themselves. And I see there's articles, oh, the January 6th commission, they're split on whether or not this is a good tactic for Democrats. There are some Democrats waving their fingers and tut-tutting. I saw David Axelrod was out there, a few others saying, oh, we don't like this. This is a disturbing, disappointing thing to do. It is far beyond disappointing. It is appalling. And the people who scream country over party the loudest, turns out what they really want is party over country. It's their power above all else, period, end of story. To my Democratic friends, is this how you want your campaign cash being spent? And what happens if some of these so-called unelectable people win? It's a big red wave year in all likelihood. It's a bad environment for Democrats. You are playing with fire, and some of these people will be elected to high office with your help. And to Republican voters, remember, you have agency. If you vote in a Republican primary, you don't have to give the Democrats what they want. You need to be aware of what they're trying to do in manipulating you and factor that into your decision. That's the only thing that I ask. Even if we end up disagreeing on what that decision is, be aware of what they are doing and why they are doing it. And maybe think twice about giving them exactly what they want and rewarding their cynicism. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Josh Crossauer will be here. A lot to get to. Stay tuned. To my Democratic friends, is this how you want your campaign cash being spent? And what happens if some of these so-called unelectable people win? It's a big red wave year in all likelihood. It's a bad environment for Democrats. You are playing with fire, and some of these people will be elected to high office with your help. And to Republican voters, remember, you have agency. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Josh Crossauer will be here. A lot to get to. Stay tuned. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. It's our happy hour. Thank you for tuning in. 
GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our Twitter and Instagram handle is at GuyBensonShow. All the ways to listen and get content from the program. Of course, there's the free podcast every day on demand, the entire show. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. So refreshing and crisp and delicious and expanding all over the country. Go to thelongdrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight. Hope to see you there. 11 p.m. Eastern time with the whole crew, Cat and Tyrus on the panel as usual. And then Dean Kane, I've been told, is the other panelist, Greg holding down the fort again 11 o'clock on Fox News Channel tonight. With me now is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, as always, welcome back. Hey, Guy. Great to be back on the show. Well, we got some breaking news earlier this afternoon that President Trump's actions on and around January 6th are now the subject of a DOJ criminal probe. We don't really have a great deal of detail on that. It's not clear where that would go, if anywhere, but it does at least seem to be an escalation in terms of potential legal culpability, or at least the attempt of some to prove that on the part of former President Trump. I wonder, is this the type of thing that moves the needle with anyone? And the reason I'm sort of skeptical about it is you have a lot of people who love Trump who have heard the story that the walls are closing in on him so many times over the course of multiple years, and it's never really come to pass that I think those folks roll their eyes. People who are in the resistance and hate him have been lapping up potential bad news based on sources involving investigations into Trump for the last five, six years, and they are clearly the intended audience for this. There might be some folks in the middle. I'm taking a wait-and-see approach to this, Josh, but... I'm just not sure, certainly for the 2022 elections, if this is going to have an impact, maybe 2024, depending on where it goes. Yeah. So, Guy, I mean, I think you've got to separate the legal from the political. Uh, you know, look, if, if, if Trump is uh, charged or if there, there, there are legal punishments uh, given to folks around him, you know, it, it hurts him politically. But at the same time, you don't want to make him a martyr politically. And all too often when you hear talk about indictments or trying to, you know, really get the news on, on Trump on a legal sense, it, it makes his supporters even more uh, loyal to, to the former president. We saw this, in, in, by the way, in Michigan, uh, this governor's race that's taking place next week. There's a guy who was just arrested by the FBI who, uh, for his activities at the Capitol on January 6th, and his numbers surged, at least for a moment, in the Republican primary because a lot of Republican voters thought he was wrongly punished, that the deep state, so to speak, was coming after him. So these days in Republican Party politics, any any move by the Department of Justice, Merrick Garland, to, to go after Trump or talk about that could actually backfire politically. It could actually make Trump, at least within Republican Party politics, a more uh, popular figure. Well, and, and also, Josh, I think, I think that's a good point. And the other companion point to it is, and I referenced this a moment ago, for month after month, year after year, we were told and fed a steady diet in the press 
that Trump's political downfall and demise was just around the next corner. This indictment, this sealed investigation in New York, that thing from Mueller, we've kind of seen this movie before. And look, if they've got the goods on him and there's something there, I am not a knee-jerk Trump defender by any stretch. The audience knows that. I'm sure it annoys some of them. But for now, it's just kind of hard to get worked up over this because these leaks happen to come at the same time that a lot of progressives are pressuring heavily the DOJ and Merrick Garland to do something about Trump. And just the timing here feels a little political, as a lot of stuff surrounding DOJ in recent years has felt. Yeah. There, there is a uh, good reason to be skeptical. We, uh, every, it feels like every time we hear about about Trump about to be charged, like from the Manhattan uh, DA office, it, it turns out to be a nothing burger. And 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 we've heard this for months, if not years, dating back to his presidency. So, look, I'm not a legal expert. I, I don't know the status of all these investigations. Sure. It seems like there is something there with the DOJ, but I can speak to the politics, which is I don't, number one, you know, maybe this would overall dent, if, if there was any, 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 any movement, it would dent his overall approval rating. But I, I am skeptical that the base of the Republican Party would view Trump any differently, even if even if uh, the DOJ made a move. Yeah, let's just hold our horses and see what actually happens, because it just it feels like deja vu. Oh, here's a panel of seven people on CNN all excited about this development. Oh, MSNBC is going to go wall to wall for a while. They finally got Trump. It's like, all right. Uh, Take a breath and get back to me in a few weeks, a few months, if there's anything there, there. Now, Josh, I want to ask you another question, somewhat related. And I did two segments, a big monologue on this last hour. So I'm sure there's some people listening saying, all right, guy, come off it. We heard your view on it, Uh, whether they agree or disagree. It's like, move on. However, because you've been tweeting about it and writing about it, I just wanted to get your reaction to these escalating tactics It's really an overarching strategy now of the Democratic Party, the official Democrats, not outside groups, but the Democratic Party itself meddling in Republican primaries to try to punish and defeat what the Democrats would call sort of sane, responsible Republicans and to help boost, amplify, stop the steal Republicans. And the theory that the Democrats are operating off of is those people in the latter category would be easier to beat in a general election in November. So they're going to help them now and then beat them later. I just cannot conceive of something more cynical, given the rhetoric of the Democratic Party about country over party and courage in the face of Trump and all of this stuff for quite some time now. They want to then turn around and punish and attack and defeat the people who they would argue did the right thing, quote unquote, for fleeting political gain that might not even materialize in a big red wave year. It just seems way beyond just playing with fire. To me, it is absolutely disgusting and utterly demolishing of their credibility on these things that they profess to believe in, that they claimed was so beyond the realm of politics and must go well past and transcend the normal political fray and then look at what they're doing. It speaks for itself. I have said enough already here because I talked about it last hour. I just wanted to get your analysis looking at this from an impartial, nonpartisan reporter's perspective. Yeah, it it is incredibly cynical that at the same time that Democrats are talking about the threat that the Republican Party poses to democracy, they themselves are spending about – 
think more than $50 million, but at least $50 million to promote MAGA Republicans, right-wing Republicans denying the results of the last election uh, for these big races for governors. $50 million. Fifty million. Uh, I think there's more. I think it's a little more than that, but but at least fifty million. Um, when, when you do the math, and it, it is an incredible investment. It's a cynical move, and it's one that even Democrats now are starting to speak out against. At least some are, because what they did most recently is they're actually going after one of the ten Republicans who voted for President Trump's impeachment. Literally, literally put his career on the line for President. To vote for the impeachment of President Trump, and was actually is running neck and neck in very close race in this primary, and, yep. and Democrats just went in for the kill. They they went in to take out um, this congressman who literally yeah the guy up, who in their the mind based on their standards did the right thing. They're going to take him out. They're at least going to try, and they did the same thing. They used an impeachment vote against another Republican out in California. The D Triple C did in the House Democrats just a few weeks ago, and so you know, we mentioned that last hour. It just, to me, is so emblematic of the moment that we're living in right now, where you have one side in high dudgeon just luxuriating in their sort of self-righteous rectitude on these issues because they're on the side of democracy itself and norms and institutions, and they don't believe in norms and institutions. They believe in their own raw power, and it's a big brawl for power. And if that's their standard, which is clearly what it is, I mean, they're speaking with their actions, with their money. If that's the standard of the Democratic Party, then they don't have a leg to stand on to criticize Republicans for being ends justify the means power at all costs. It's both sides do it. One side just sort of pretends that they don't. And often the media claps along like seals, even though it's not true. Yeah, I mean, look, there was always a good reason to be skeptical about some of these, you know, over-the-top talking points that Democrats talked about when they talk about election, elections, election integrity. There obviously are real reasons to be worried about some of these extreme candidates that, that are on, on the ballot. But for the most part, a lot of Republican nominees, candidates, elected officials, you know, are not, are not that, that type, and they, 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 they're not. They're distinct from, from that, that more extreme version of the party. So when you see Democrats playing in these Republican primaries, so many of them, and trying to promote the more extreme candidates, it really, um, you know, it really makes you wonder if they actually believe what they say. And uh, look, I also don't think from a political standpoint, I think it's a misjudgment, too, because what, what, what is one House seat going to mean in the grand scheme of things for the DCCC, for the Democrats in the House? Looking like a pretty big wave for the Republicans. One House seat isn't going to make or break yeah. the party. Hope it's worth it, and guys. Yet, Hope it's yet, worth and, it. And, and, and yet they're throwing away everything they've said about, about, about preserving democracy and so on. So, and they yeah, might help really- get some of these people actually elected. They can say, oh, that person will be easy to beat because they're crazy. And then Republicans say, you know what we hate? The Democrats and the outcomes of this administration. We want to change. Here's someone with an R next to their name. Let's go for it. And there's a non-zero, if not decent chance that some of these people will actually win with the help of Democrats under this strategy. It's just I think, start to finish awful, even if it, quote unquote, works perfectly. The cynicism, I think, is a stain that I will not be forgetting anytime soon. Josh, let's talk about a specific race, really a couple races in a very big state. You and I have talked so many times about Georgia. We have a big affiliate in Atlanta, Extra. Georgia is, again, an epicenter of our politics this cycle. It was in 2020. To, to a certain extent, it was in 2018 as well. Then you had the runoffs in 2021. And here we are in 2022, a big governor's race, a big Senate race, also a secretary of state race that we'll talk about. New poll out today. 
kind of gives off the vibe of where things sit right now. And I think there are a couple worrisome signs for the Democrats in this survey from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and maybe some hopeful signs for Republicans, even if the top lines don't look awesome at the moment. Give us the lay of the land based on this survey and what you think about it. Right. So my takeaway from from the survey is that the quality of Republican candidates matters a whole lot in a swing state like Georgia. Uh, the, the the strongest Republican on the ballot is the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who survived that Republican primary and is up by 15 points against a Democrat who a lot of party leaders of the Democratic Party think is a rising star, is winning, and is probably going to win in a landslide. Governor Kemp doing really well, uh, mainstream Republican, conservative, uh, winning by five points against Stacey Abrams, may even do better than that, according to some other polls I've, I've heard. But he, he's looking in very good shape for that governor's race. Uh, and as someone who did not get Trump's endorsement, but ran as an otherwise traditional conservative governor. Herschel Walker is down by three points in that same poll uh, in the Senate race against Senator Warnock. Now, he still could win. It's a close race within the margin of error, but he's not doing as well. Uh, and he's the guy who he's struggled on the campaign trail, but also also has that Trump seal of approval, got Trump's endorsement. Trump recruited him into the race and, and he's underperforming where Republicans would be, should be in, in, in the moment in time. So it goes to show that in, in these purple states, purple districts, candidates matter, and, and there can be a wide disparity on how well someone does based on their independence, based on how well they do on the campaign trail. The more extreme the candidates, the less independent voters are going to win over, may even lose some more moderate Republican voters. The candidates that are a little more moderate or a little more pragmatic are the ones that are running up the score and winning big right now in, in Georgia. Well, I would say Herschel is a political neophyte in a lot of ways. He has some personal baggage, no doubt. They're kind of hiding him from the campaign trail in a lot of ways. He's also a legend in the state and very popular because of his exploits as a University of Georgia running back. And he's got a talented opponent in the incumbent, Raphael Warnock, who's got his own issues. And I look at that poll and I see generic ballot R plus five, Raffensperger plus 14 or 15. A lot of crossovers there, obviously. Kemp up five. I think he's got, to your point, a higher ceiling than that. Because the undecided still, Josh, the undecideds in all of these races are heavily breaking as Biden disapprovers. And he is very, the president is very unpopular in the state of Georgia. So if I had to bet right now my own money, absent major changes, if I had to bet a plus or minus five, like if that were the over under five points for Kemp, I might bet the over. And if that's the case and people break toward the end, toward the Republicans, toward the party out of power, against the party in power, the ruling party with a very unpopular president at the helm, that's the type of movement that could absolutely help put Herschel Walker over the top, maybe closer than Kemp's win would be. But I think it is totally plausible that Walker could win that race down in the Senate race. And that type of effect could replicate itself in some of the other key contests, Josh, around the country. Last word to you. I think your analysis is, is spot on. If Herschel Walker wins in Georgia, you'll know this is a big Republican wave year. If, if it's a good year, you know, very good year even, Republicans may get one or two Senate seats. If Herschel Walker early on election night in Georgia wins, we're, we're looking at, at, a, at a major wave, and that would be the sign of what you're talking about. The undecideds almost all break towards the Republicans, and a lot of folks are willing to overlook 
you know, Walker stumbles on the campaign trail in favor of the governing parties, you know, handling over, over what's looking like a very weak economy heading into the midterms. Yep. And do some loosely attached Democrats stay home because they're demoralized, dissatisfied? Those are also questions that might keep Democrats awake at night for the next few months. And there are certainly things that Republicans will be worried about over that same period of time. And we'll be talking about all of it on this show, including with Josh Krasauer of Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, thank you so much. Thanks, Guy. And we'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show after this. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. Well, we know that Jen Psaki, the former press secretary at the White House, had a catchphrase that we talked about a lot, circle back. In fact, we called her circle back. That was her nickname on the show. Well, Corrine Jean-Pierre is her successor. I've made my opinion about her job performance pretty clear. I don't think that she's doing a great job. I'll put it kindly. She has her own catchphrase, as it turns out, and the Republican National Committee caught on to it, put together a montage. This is only about one quarter of the montage, which lasts two minutes. Here's a taste of it, cut 19. I don't have anything. I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I just don't have anything. I don't have anything. We don't have anything. I just don't have anything. Don't have anything. So I don't have anything. 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 Just don't have anything. I just don't have anything. I don't have anything. Again, I don't have anything. I don't have anything. I don't have anything. Don't have anything. I don't have anything. I just don't have anything. I 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 don't have anything. We don't have anything. I don't have anything how perfectly fitting and appropriate and on brand she said it a hundred times in the montage she has not been on the job very long and frankly i would say more about this but i don't have anything we'll be right back You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Earlier in today's show, we welcomed back Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, always an interesting, entertaining guest. A lot to get to with him, which is always the case. Here is just a snippet of that conversation between yours truly and Chris Christie. Let me first start by thanking you. You and your wife invited me and my brother to the Yankees-Mets Subway Series game at Citi Field last night. You're on the board for the Mets, and you have access to a suite for a lot of the games. And it was very kind of you to invite us. We had a great time despite the outcome of the game. It's a great setup. The food was amazing, a really cool group of people. So just wanted to put that out there. I posted on social media. I just want to thank you since I had you here. Well, you're very welcome. It was great to have you and your brother there. And while we disagreed on the outcome, we both enjoyed the game. I think that's right, and I think tonight you guys probably have the upper hand looking at that pitching matchup, but uh, we shall see game two of the very short series uh, in Queens this evening. Governor, I want to ask you about this because I spent some of the show at the beginning in our first hour talking about just the eagerness with which a lot of people in the press have been latching on to the latest White House talking point where they're saying, oh, well, even if tomorrow's GDP number is negative growth again for the second straight quarter, despite what you've heard, you know, forever as the definition of what a recession is, that's not really a recession. And look, I understand that there are some mitigating factors and that the labor market's good and the jobs numbers are overall pretty strong. I'm not denying any of that. 
But it seems like if a Republican were to try the same trick to say, let's throw out the definition of what this bad term means because we might experience it on our watch and we want some political cover, uh, even if there were some of these other factors and points of strength, I, I just cannot imagine the media uh, rushing to a large extent to say like, oh, oh, yes, let's adjust our language accordingly. Thank you for that guidance, Republicans. It's just unfathomable. It would never happen. And yet in a number of places, including the Associated Press, that's been the last 48 hours of our de- of our discourse. Does the definition still mean the same thing that it has for a century or whatever? Uh, and I know you've been as a Republican on the other side of this many times. And I'd imagine you might have a few thoughts. I do. Uh, first guy, on the White House, desperate people do desperate things. And trying for the first time in a century to redefine what a recession is, is desperation. And it just tells you how these bad poll numbers, these bad gas prices, bad food prices, supply line shortages, crime in the streets, uh, how that's affecting the brain function of the people in the Biden White House to believe that people are going to allow them to do that. The only exception to that rule is if you're a Democrat and you're being covered by the mainstream press. And then you get every break in the world cut for you. And you're right. I, I was, you know, I operated for eight years in, I think, the toughest media market in America, in New York and Philadelphia, uh, where they give you no break as a Republican, uh, give you no quarter. And what we're seeing with Biden now just reinforces what all of us already know, which is that the media is not on our side. And they never will be. And this is another example of how foolish um, they are to just continue to wreck their own credibility um, by siding with something by the Biden folks, which is clearly deranged. Yeah. And so on that point, a couple things. I tweeted this earlier because I was I was watching the spin happen in real time. Just, you know, the marching orders coming down from the White House on high and a bunch of people just ingesting them and regurgitating them immediately. And this is what I tweeted. And it's a sports analogy, so I think you might like it. I said, with the mainstream news media, Democrats play home games. Republicans are the away team. Yes, the crowd occasionally boos the home team when they're frustrated or dissatisfied with the team's performance, but they're wearing the colors and will always be back. That's kind of how I view it. Maybe a little simplistic, but it feels kind of apropos. Guy, you'd always rather have a home game to continue the analogy. And, yeah, there are going to be times when the home crowd isn't always on your side, but they're your crowd. And the mainstream media is the hometown crowd um, for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And there's just no doubt about that. And this is another example of it. So yeah, and, and sometimes I'm not the least surprised. and sometimes they'll say, well, look, you know, we criticize the Democrats, too, and they'll show a few examples. But in many, if not most of the cases, the instances of that criticism, it's criticism coming from the left. Right. So they criticize Republicans from the left, of course. But in many cases, they criticize Democrats from the left. Why aren't you progressive enough? Why aren't you effective enough in achieving the things that we want? That's that's a sort of a qualitative difference in addition to the quantitative difference in the type of criticism that we see. Last question on the media bias thing, because it's a trope and it's an important one. But I want to move on to a couple other things. But and I'll, I'll occasionally float this. And I just wonder if it might one day gain some currency on the left within the journalism, uh, you know, 
world and within democratic politics. But I do wonder, is that sort of tribal instinct with so many in the journalist class just so in the tank on leftism and democratic party politics and all of it, is it so blatant and so potent and so powerful that it actually ultimately ends up hurting them in that they are so closely wedded and so deep inside the same bubble that they form an echo chamber that is, as it turns out, very off-putting to many Americans, including independent swing voters, and sort of the laziness and the bias of the press uh, begets a laziness among Democrats who believe they can get away with anything, and ultimately they get fat and happy reading their own press, and it hurts them with voters. Well, look, there's no doubt in my mind that they take it for granted, and that anything that puts you on your heels in politics, in my view, um, in any way for any amount of time is a problem. You always need to be on your toes, on the balls of your feet, and ready to go to react, to propose, to act. And I think that the Democrats do take some solace in knowing that they're going to have certain publications uh, in the mainstream media that are going to be on their side all along. And it does make them um, a little bit complacent at times. But what it also does, too, is it fires up our side, guys. Yeah. Because we still see it and we see the bias and it makes us work even harder most of the time to be able to try to overcome it. Yeah, it's like just to do one more tortured sports analogy. It's like a hockey goal. He doesn't take shots on net for like half a period. Then in comes one shot. He's like, how dare you? And that's how how they react sometimes. If they get any tough coverage, they they kind of freak out. Like, hang on, guys, you're supposed to be on our side. It's a sense of betrayal, and it's it's very obvious when they're sort of caught off guard by the the occasional stray truth bomb from the press. Governor Christie, you and I had a bit of this conversation last night at the ballpark, and I thought it was interesting enough that I wanted to share it with the audience here. We were talking about 2024 a little bit, and all this buzz around Biden. Is he going to? Stay? Is he going to run for re-election? Is he going to be out? I don't think he's going to make himself a lame duck before the midterms, but I think at some point, maybe ne- le- you know, late next year, the time is going to come where he's going to announce he's not running for re-election. That's my guess. I could be wrong. Democrats are very unhappy with him. They're dissatisfied. The polling numbers bear this out. But then you look at who else is out there, and you're a pretty astute observer of political talent. You've got the vice president. So if not Biden, and you might think that's a flawed premise, but if not Biden, you've got the vice president, who I think is um, flawed in terms of her political, limited in terms of her political talent and appeal, uh, but would be awfully difficult to just supplant at the drop of a hat because of uh, the way that they operate on identity politics and all of that. You've got a few people like, you know, the secretary of transportation people want to talk about. Then you've got these governors, Newsom. California, Pritzker, Illinois, who don't seem to really have done a good job. If you look at actual, you know, results in those states, is it a is it a sign of desperation, a word you used earlier, among the Democratic electorate where they're like, okay, if it's not going to be Biden, gosh, maybe the governor of California is the ticket. I mean, in what world does he seem like an appealing guy? In his own world, guy. <laughs> Remember, this all starts inside his head and J.B. Pritzker's head. I mean, it's not like, you know, you have, you know, mountains of people coming to either one of them saying you must 
you know, sacrifice for the nation and run for president. Um, they're doing things themselves to make it known they want to do it. Um, I think it does speak horribly to the vacuum that Biden and Harris have created, where even in their own party, they don't believe that either one of them um, could be the type of leader they need to be the standard bearer in 2024. Um, and I think that you're, what you're going to see um, is folks like Newsom and Pritzker, who for different reasons have the financial resources to be able to run a very early game for 2024. Pritzker's is personal. Newsom's is because of the enormous amount of fundraising capability there is out in California for him amongst that constituency. Um, they're going to play this early game. You see Newsom running ads in Florida and in Texas and, you know, to criticize those governors sitting there. Uh, and they are running. And I said this, you know, on, on, on ABC this week, you know, they're trying to explain what Newsom's doing. I'm like, it's no more complicated than he is running for president. That's it. And look, if you're running for president based on a record where you were recalled, um, you know, they had a recall election um, to uh, to go after you. I don't think that's a great record to run on. And certainly J.B. Pritzker driving Illinois closer to bankruptcy um, isn't one either. So Republicans may get lucky and run against one of those guys. Um, that would be a race I, that we race any of us would, would love to have. Yeah, I'm just not really sure you know, how many Americans are clamoring to say, oh, yes, let's make uh, let's make this a big referendum on whether we want the country to be California with, with, you know, many people leaving the state of California. In fact, we're going to talk about that coming up in the next segment. But I, I think you're right. These guys have decided or at least are very close to deciding they want to go after that prize. They've convinced themselves they could be the savior. My full interview with former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie available start to finish on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. It's also on the podcast, which is the entire show, free of charge, on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the vice president strikes again. That audio, next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. It's another Big Apple edition of the Guy Benson Show homestretch. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free. At Guy Benson Show on Twitter and Instagram. Tune in tonight for Gutfeld at 11 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel. I always look forward to that. You may have seen this clip. It immediately got spread everywhere with the ridicule pouring in. Vice President Kamala Harris was presiding over a roundtable, and she began that roundtable by introducing herself, and she did so in a rather unusual way in Cut 15. Uh, Good afternoon. I want to welcome these leaders for coming in to have this very important discussion um, about some of the most pressing issues of our time. I am Kamala Harris. My pronouns are she and her. I am a woman sitting at the table wearing a blue suit. Oh, thank you. Now, my understanding is that this event featured some disability advocates. So sometimes if there are folks, for example, who are blind, speakers will describe themselves to make those people feel more included. Perhaps that was part of what was at play here. But saying, I'm Kamala Harris, these are my pronouns, I am a woman sitting at the table, 
then she describes her suit. It's like, it's just weird. Does anyone doubt her pronouns? There were a million news articles written about how she was the first woman, dot, 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 after the 2020 election, even when she was selected by Biden. We all know she's a woman. And she says, well, we're here to talk about some of the most pressing issues of our time, but let's now go around the table and spend an hour and a half introducing ourselves with all of these descriptors and pronouns and everything. I'm all for inclusion and making people feel more welcome. But this kind of feels more like a religious ritual with the religion being progressive identity wokeness. And so they went around and they did their thing. Later on, Harris wanted to make some important points on this pressing issue of our time. The issue being abortion in this case. I guess they were talking about abortion with disability activists or something like that. She's taking the lead on abortion rights, which means it's probably a pretty good sign for the pro-life movement because whatever she touches, basically the opposite happens. Just look at her work at the border, for example. We can only be so fortunate if that's the case on this issue set. But she did what she often does, which is ramble a bit and toss together a really delicious word salad where she says many words that don't really mean all that much. She sometimes gets stuck on a certain word or phrase, like the significance of the passage of time being very famous in the anthology. See if you might be able to detect yesterday's word of the day for the vice president. Cut 16. The act of the United States Supreme Court to take away a constitutional right that has been recognized the people of America will impact a lot of people and differently in some situations. And we need to be responsive to these issues and also lift up the voices of all people who will be impacted in the way that they will be impacted. So that's why we are convened today. And um, I will add a couple of points in terms of the direct impact. She had impact or impacted on my scorecard four times in that half a minute clip. And so I think it's time to fire up a brand new montage. Hit it. I think that there can be no higher priority than what we have been clear is our highest priority. We got to take this stuff seriously, as seriously as you are, because you have been forced to have to take it seriously. And also lift up the voices of all people who will be impacted in the way that they will be impacted. I do believe that we should have rightly believed, but we certainly believe that the significance of the passage of time, it is time for us to do what we have been doing, which is why we will work together and continue to work together. We all believe that when we talk about the children of the community, they are a children of the community. That has a a, a long history of, of being part of America's history. I acknowledge one must acknowledge. There is great significance to the passage of time. And that time is every day. (laughs) Mm. Well said, Madam Vice President, as always. It's amazing she's only polling 6% in New Hampshire. How is that possible? This amount of raw political talent? And these Democratic voters, just so unaware, unappreciative of what they have, these ingrates. 
who incidentally, obviously, are pretty racist and sexist. The sitting vice president, polling at 6% among Democratic voters for 2024 in the crucial early state of New Hampshire. I wonder how that little factoid might impact her thinking. Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern. See you there, Fox News Channel. Back here on the radio, same time and same place tomorrow. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.